we knew or I knew that in order to defeat trickle down economics, we had to build an alternative that contrasted with it very sharply. Economics is a set of numbers, but it's also a set of ideas. The more people you fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous and more inclusive it grows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The economy is people. Right. Yeah. That's and what that it is. is. And that is why it grows from the middle out. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. On this episode, Nick, we're going to get a little personal and uh, talk about one of your babies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your child known as Middle Out. Well, yeah. Today on the pod, we are going to we're going to interview our old friend Michael Tomaski on on Middle Out economics, and now I'm really happy to get to do that. Uh, but it has been a long a long road. As you may recall, when Eric Liu and I wrote our last book, The Gardens of Democracy, we, um, you know, the first book we wrote, which was The True Patriot, made the argument that true patriotism in America meant uh, putting, you know, the country first, that selfishness was morally wrong, largely. And middle and, and the Gardens of Democracy made a parallel argument, which was that selfishness wasn't just wrong it's actually stupid and self-defeating and one of the central ideas in that book was advancing a narrative a counter narrative to trickle down economics which was uh in 2010 9 8 you know totally dominant as as sort of the you know and then neoliberalism was ascendant although crumble it was ascendant but you know there were cr cracks everywhere and certainly the, the, that was during the Obama administration and those guys uh, were Democrats, but as neoliberal as they come. And what we knew, what I knew absolutely, was that that the progressive project was not possible without an alternative theory of growth, that you can't just say no to trickle down economics you have to say yes to some affirmative alternative to that and you have to ground that set of policy ideas and intellectual framework in a narrative about economic cause and effect that people can understand and mm -hmm. contrast with trickle down and so oh my god goldie i mean I think this was before you and I worked together. Right, just but, just before, yeah. Yeah, but holy crap, we went through so many. I can't, I cannot remember <laughs> the number of alternatives that we went through before we settled on what we thought was the least worst option, which was middle-out economics. And there were so many other possibilities. Yeah, it's funny how that works out because it's actually the perfect option in in so many ways, Nick, because the most powerful kind of narrative is a counter narrative. Yes, <laughs> because it 
it gives you an enemy it has a built-in enemy because this is you know we've talked from the very first episode this is about storytelling economics is about storytelling and middle out explicitly in its name and in its arguments is a counter narrative to trickle down right yeah and so it it works beautifully in that way because it names the enemy uh by contrast that's right and just reflecting on what you just said you know our listeners have only gotten to know me as a sort of political activist a pontificator about economics but in my former life uh, i was pretty much centrally a marketing and business strategy right. person i was very good at it <laughs> uh and i took it as seriously as i do economics and that like so for example building you know if you want to have a a successful positioning strategy for a product you must be able to position it against something right right you can people humans cannot perceive things unless they are in contrast to other things if you hold your hand up in front of your face you can only see it because there is not hand behind it and so we knew or i knew that in order to defeat trickle-down economics we had to build an alternative that contrasted with it very sharply and so that's you know right. that's basically how we came up with middle out economics it, now, it, it is nick by the way one of the counterintuitive truths about marketing that competition is good for you if your competitor is go going to make the market <laughs> for you yeah uh, yeah. Now you have a kid, let your competitor make the market and then you can compete against your competitor in the market they made. Yeah, and correct. So you already have trickle down. It's like the classic flip on minimum wage where you took the supply side uh, argument that uh, when you raise the price of something, uh, people buy less of it. So if you raise wages, uh, employers will hire less people and you flip it to when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. Right. They're pretty much inverse uh, instantiations of the same argument. But the other side spent so much time laying the groundwork for you that it's really easy to take that and flip it 180 and it makes perfect sense plus it puts most people back into the center of the economy where they want to be instead of employers and we had two big advantages one being exactly what you said is that you you've now built a narrative that puts the vast majority of people at the center of it rather than the periphery and the other massive advantage we had was it was true. <laughs> That's the thing, you know, it's like, it turns out it is not true that if you raise wages, it kills jobs. But it is true that if nobody has any money, then no one will have no nobody will buy any stuff, right? That when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers that this is, in fact, how markets work. Uh, so anyway, I mean, that's the, you know, that's sort of generally the story. Um, enough about us. Let, <laughs> let's talk to Michael. I'm Michael Tomaski, editor of the New Republic magazine. I'm also editor of Democracy, a Journal of Ideas, quarterly journal. I write fairly frequently for the New York Review of Books, and I am the author of a new book published in September by Doubleday called The Middle Out, colon, 
the rise of progressive economics and a return to shared prosperity. We're not quite there yet. It's a little bit of an optimistic subtitle. But... <laughs> we are we are most definitely headed in the right direction. I think so. Yeah. Uh, so, Michael, so much to talk about, obviously. You and uh, we have been on the middle out journey here for, wow, a pretty long time together. Yeah. So, you know, for our listeners, just sort of give it, give us a summary of your book and the the arc of the story of the middle out. Uh, I guess I should start by saying that I borrow the title of the book from a earlier book, more than a decade old now, by two guys named Eric Liu and Nick Hanauer, <laughs> who, who coined the phrase the middle out, uh, meaning that the economy grows from the middle out, uh, not from the top down, as Joe Biden likes to say. I use that phrase because I think it's a very resonant phrase, and I think it's uh, it's uh, as as you and I have discussed many times over the years. It's a it's a phrase that uh, sets up an exact answer to supply side trickle down neoliberal economics, and and it has a theory behind it. Uh, so it's not just empty words. It it has real substantive ideas behind it. So that's why I chose it as the title. I want to help do what I can to make that phrase stick and, and get out there in the public. As for the book, it's organized in two sections. Uh, the first section is historical exposition, I suppose I would say, that goes back to the 1930s and the 1940s and, and up through really the Great Recession and tries to tell the history of the United States from a more economic perspective than a political perspective and explains to people you know, how Keynesianism took over in the form of New Deal liberalism after the Great Depression, then how Keynesianism lost its foothold in the 1970s because of the OPEC crisis and, and uh, uh, stagflation uh, and other economic issues, how Milton Friedman and the neoliberals and the su supply-siders then took over. And it brings people up to speed on how and why we had those shifting economic paradigms. That's part one of the book, the first five chapters. The last four chapters uh, are more reported and tell the story of efforts in our world over these last 10 or 12 years to try and change that, to try and end the neoliberal regnancy in economic thinking in this country. And, and I introduced readers to some of the people who've been central to that fight, including Nick Hanauer, uh, but also including Larry Kramer, the head of the Hewlett Foundation, who funds a massive effort along these lines. Uh, my friend Felicia Wong of the Roosevelt Institute, with whom I co-host now a new podcast, which I'm going to plug here, called How to Save a Country. Uh, and then, uh, so I describe changes in the activist world, the think tank world, the foundation world, and importantly, in the economics profession itself, where a lot has changed in the last 20 years, mostly all for the better. Then finally, the last chapter is the prescriptive chapter where I sort of say what elected Democrats should do about all this. Mike, why did you decide to write the book? This is uh, one of the most important stories of our time in, yeah. in politics. Uh, there are two stories of our time. One is the assault on democracy. Uh, and that's, I think everybody understands how serious and grave a situation that is. The other is this effort to try and 
you know, reinvent our economy in ways that help more people and that yeah. trend and that transfer wealth from the top to the middle and the bottom. We have, as, as you both know, in this country, the central economic fact of the last 40 years is a massive transfer of wealth from, from the middle to the top. The Rand Corporation study that I'm sure you've mentioned before to your yeah. listeners from yeah. 2020 that, that describes a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the middle to the top over the last 40 years. It's time to transfer that wealth back. And, uh, you know, and by the way, it goes hand in hand with democracy and freedom, as I discuss in my last chapter. These aren't two different things or three different things. It's all one argument. A stronger middle class strengthens democracy. This is something Democrats don't say enough. But you know, when you have too much economic and political power in the hands of the 1%, you creep toward oligarchy. And we're doing that, if indeed we're not already there. So a stronger middle class strengthens democracy and increases people's freedom. Yeah, absolutely. In your... Um research. Uh, was there anything, I mean, you know, Mike, you have been obviously not just uh, an observer of th this transformation, but an active participant. Cripes, we we did, a, how many years ago did we do, a, did you publish uh, the middle out moment in Democracy Journal? Right. I just right? looked that up. I looked that up not yeah. long ago, 2014. Yeah. 2014, yeah. right? Like we have been grinding yeah. Uh, for a long time. Uh, and, and so obviously you've been, you know, pretty steeped in all this stuff. What surprised you? That, is, there, is there stuff you learned along the way doing research for this book that you just didn't know that really sort of jumped out at you? It was like aha moment stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I knew, as you suggest, the foundation and think tank activity and the political activism pretty well. I learned a lot of stuff about economics and about the economic profession and about the changes in the economic profession. And this is chapter six of the book. And it's kind of my favorite chapter because it's the one where I learned the most doing the research and the interviews. But economics uh, basically has moved from being based primarily on theoretical modeling to being based primarily on data and empirical research. Now, lay people listening to this show might that might sound weird to people and it might confuse people. What, you know, you mean 30 years ago, economics wasn't based on data? Well, I'm not saying that, that's, that's overstating it. But there is truth to the assertion that in the economics profession over the course of the, oh, I don't know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, theoretical modeling became more dominant than empirical research. And then in the 90s and the early aughts with more powerful computers and, and, more, and simply more data, for example, the data that Thomas Piketty used for capital in the 21st century, decades of United States income tax returns just wasn't available to people yeah. before. So more powerful computers and, and more data made better empirical research possible. And to a considerable extent, the empirical research has shown what people like you and I have been saying for 15 or 20 years. Yeah. That, you know, that the game the models been, are wrong. Yeah, that the <laughs> models are wrong and the game has been rigged. And, 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 you know, we have, as I said a few months ago, transferred 
massive wealth toward the top. So uh, to the extent that the economics profession in general has been pushed to the left by a younger generation of, of economists, it's not really because of their ideology. It's because that's what the data say. Does that really mean they've been pushed to the left or have they been pushed to reality? Towards the yeah. truth. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. They're, yeah. And I, I, I say, uh, I write this, that very sentence in the book, Goldie, the, you know, economics. And I quote Heidi Shearholtz of Economic Policy Institute, who I'm sure you both know and who's, who's yeah. wonderful. Uh, I quote her as saying you know, that, that economics is finally caught up with reality. And that was in the context, Nick, of talking about a point I've heard you make many times, which is the how wages are set, which is largely not through impersonal market forces, but you know, workers earn what they have the political power to earn. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and again, you know, we, we've talked about this on the pod ad, ad nauseum, but just an example to underscore Mike's point about the departure, you know, that a world lived in theory rather than reality. It wasn't until 1994 when the first empirical analysis was done of the impact of the minimum wage on employment, where Andrew Card and Alan Kruger discovered to their horror that none of the theories were true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, when they published that, you know, that created a giant shitstorm that that, you know, largely continues to this day as the most orthodox and the most right wing economists continue to dig in around theory yeah. and just simply cannot believe that their precious theories are not borne out by reality. And of course, the, the reason theories don't comport to reality is the theories are all based on nonsense assumptions about human behavior and the dynamics of human social systems and the rest of it, right? They're tractable and easy to mathematize, but they're just not true. They just don't accurately represent what happens on planet Earth. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. And you know, the more you peel the layers of this onion back, the more flabbergasted you become about what people believed and why they believed it and what assumptions they were making. And it just, yeah. it just boggles the mind how screwed up this profession yeah. has been and what a terrible impact it has had on humanity over the last 50 years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely terrible. You know, there, there's a, there's a story I tell in the book that's, that's famous in these particular circles where Card and Kruger were presenting their findings at the Brookings institution and taking questions and and somebody uh there's a debate uh, these days over who exactly it was but somebody finally exasperated at all this talk of data stood up and said well you know theory is evidence too <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that 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 reminded me of of the old the old economics joke about the the economists when confronted with some exciting new uh data from a student remarks, uh, well, that's all very well and good that it works in practice, but does it work in theory? <laughs> yeah, that's about the size of it. Uh, but, you know, to make a more serious point, to pick up on your second point, Nick, that, that yeah, these effects in the world have been very harmful and, and based on uh, lies, based on things that just aren't true. And it's depressing the extent to which our political discourse and this is another reason I wrote the book. I, I really, I hope and pray that as many House and Senate Democrats as possible 
read this book and think about these arguments and take them seriously because and they're they're not just my arguments i'm synthesizing yeah. a bunch of arguments by a bunch of people because for example on the minimum wage they need to get out there and say there's virtually zero evidence from the real world that the minimum wage is a job killer there was the one controversy over the seattle effort that you were involved in and the and the university of washington study that they backtracked on yeah, no, the, the principal author, uh, Jake Vigder, essentially wrote a mea culpa on his blog. That's right. That's right. Saying that may, maybe in the end it adversely affected, you know, teenagers. Yes, possibly. Right. Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't prevent national Republicans from standing up there and saying a higher minimum wage is a job killer. You know, Joe Manchin even obviously believed that to some extent. I think yeah. he probably he probably would have gone for eleven, but or something. But Kirsten Cinema, uh, you know, what didn't apparently want any kind of increase at all. So it's still conventional wisdom in political circles uh, that old saw about raising the minimum wage. And I just say, uh, you know, the Democrats get a miracle this election and keep the House and add a couple senators. I pray to God they get rid of the filibuster. Yeah, for, and for get voting, some more stuff done. Yeah. For voting rights, for sure. But you know, to raise the minimum wage, you know, to, to raise the minimum wage to at least 13. Yeah, no, I agree. The, the other thing that I'm feeling incredibly good about, just to be clear, the country may still descend into fascism and chaos and revolution, but... Certainly, it's true that the Biden administration has accomplished more economically than any administration in, well, in my lifetime. And, and I really, truly believe that that is because they drove a, a counter narrative to the neoliberal trickle down narrative and governed to that narrative. And as a consequence, they got like all this great stuff done. There's a couple of thoughts I have I'd love you to respond to. The first is, you can't beat a thing unless you have another thing, Yep. <laughs> right? And one of the beauties of the Biden administration getting behind middle-out economics is that, is that they're not just, the Democrats are not just the party of, no, uh, we don't want to give tax cuts to rich people. They're, now you have an affirmative story to tell people about what you want, what you want to do, how you want to govern, how you want to generate productivity, more productivity and growth and other things like that, which I think is incredibly important. Well, not incredibly important. It is absolutely essential if you want to govern. The other thing is that it's so much easier to kill a thing if you can name it. And what really strikes me, I think a great example of how far we've come is the catastrophe that beset the trust people in the UK yeah. when they played the trickle-down playbook. That was right? one of the yeah. That was one of the most heartening things I've seen in politics in a long, long time. Absolutely. Just, uh, just from Jump Street, people pounced on her and said, "What? What is this warmed-over nonsense that's completely irrelevant to our times?" That was really encouraging to see. Yeah, and she backtracked. And for listeners who, uh, you know, not all of you are following <laughs> closely following British politics, but. Uh, if you haven't been, uh, there's a new prime minister named Liz Truss, who uh, was a conservative. And to be fair, the prior 
conservative government has been moderately constructive with respect to economic policy. They had a what they call the leveling up agenda, which sought to make wages go up for working people and a bunch of other reasonably productive things. Not perfect, but not as bad as it could be. Uh, Boris Johnson got booted out. Liz Truss came in and her first play was 1980s style trickle down economics. Huge tax cuts for the rich. Uh, there were limits on the bonuses that bankers could get. She took those off. I mean, it was just like opening up a 1980s political playbook and picking the top five things to do. And what was most surprising about it was the with the virtually universal pushback from the policymaking and economics profession about how stupid that was, because it just demonstrably doesn't produce any of the benefits that it's supposed to. Now, would that happen here? I honestly don't know. I mean, Trump's 2017 tax cuts were not popular. So, no. so you know, that kind of thing isn't, you know, people aren't buying it anymore. People see through it. Our side has finally, I think, won that debate. That doesn't necessarily mean it would stop the Republicans from just going back to that single oh, 1980s. 100%. Percent. Because the di the difference here is that the Republicans have set up things so that they're totally immune to public opinion. Yeah, I mean, right. They don't care whether what they do is popular with the broader population. It only needs to be popular with their base. Yeah, correct. And, you know, like 80 percent of Americans are in favor of universal background checks for guns, too. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it's been a brutal thing to do anything on that. So, I mean, the United States suffers from a lack of democratic accountability. Uh, but there is no doubt that no one really takes seriously that playbook as a way to generate economic progress. She had to reverse herself. She reversed herself, what, 10 days, two weeks after she announced it, which is astonishing. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Uh, I, I've never seen anything like it. So I think that, you know, those those politics, those ideas are dead and, and dying even here, even as lockstep as the Republican Party is. I still think Democrats and, and liberals and progressives, you know, and, and you're right that Biden's middle out framing does tell a different story and provide a different context. So they're getting there and progress is being made. I think there's one really important point that needs more emphasis that I don't hear Democrats talk about much, which is that there is no trade-off, okay? And you and I have talked about this recently, Nick. There is no trade-off between inclusivity and growth or, you know, equality and growth. Better equality gives better growth. More yeah. inclusivity provides better growth. Uh, if people don't want to take it from me, they can take it from the OECD, which has published a number of papers along these lines. They can take it from the International Monetary Fund, which published a paper that I cite in the book that, that, that said that if women around the world were you know, permitted to be in the economy at, at their full productive capacity, the advantages to, to global GDP would be just absolutely enormous. I forget the number, but it's just a massive number. So uh, that's a backwards thing that the old theoretical economics just had wrong, uh, that you don't sacrifice growth when you try to improve equality. 
economic equality. Uh, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because you know, as Nick mentioned, uh, both of you have mentioned earlier, there's there's real economic theory behind middle out, and this is the core, the uh, I think the 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 fundamental uh, uh, theoretical heuristic of middle out economics. It is the inclusionary principle that the more people you fully include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous and more inclusive it grows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The economy is people. Right. Yeah. That's and what that it is. is. And that is why it grows from the middle out, because yeah, that's where right. most of the people, people are. are. That's where right. the talent is. That's where the work is. That's where the consumption is. That's where the entrepreneurialism is. It's not about capital. It's about people. And some of them wield capital, but yeah. it's not about capital. It's about including more people in the economy. And there's a ton of theory behind that. Yeah. And and again, as you as you point out, Mike, that is the opposite of what people have been learning in economics textbooks for generations, right? That they, they were basically taught that there was always this trade-off between a society that was more helpful to people and economic efficiency, which of course, economic efficiency as a concept in and of itself is a scam, which is just a, it's a, it's a fancy way of saying, removing the barriers to making rich people richer. <laughs> That's what most people think of as economic efficiency. Yeah. The broader point is that, you know, this is a big public re-education project, you know, and because it's not just talking about well, if we do this policy, it'll generate this billion, you know, in yeah. in benefits to to middle class people or whatever. It's baseline assumptions. As I write in the introduction of the book, economics is a set of numbers, but it's also a set of ideas about how society should be organized, about what constitutes the good life, and about what are the best decisions we make to get there. And Democrats, you know, they kind of have to re-educate people about about these ideas and these assumptions. I mean, it can be done. The conservatives did it. You know, they did it. So if they can do it, we can do it. But, you know, everybody has to buy into the idea that that's the job that has to be done. Yeah. And we have to be relentless and, you know, just stick it, stick with it for a long time. Uh, how much of an effort do we need to make to reeducate journalists? I mean, how bad is journalism at this? Every time a, a CBO or Penn Wharton uh, model report gets published, it is just repeated credulously in, in the press as if, oh, well, increasing the minimum wage is going to kill jobs because the models say so. And they report it without questioning the models. Yeah, there's a lot of journalistic shorthand that political journalists use, and they may not they probably don't know a whole lot about economics. They probably haven't read a whole lot of this kind of stuff. I don't think they mean any harm in doing it, but they actually perpetrate some harm in repeating these things. I mean, here's here's a recent example that just kind of blew my mind. So the cost of Biden's student loan forgiveness, I forget the number that CBO put on it. Was it four? $400 billion. $400 billion. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Usually those CBO estimates are over 10 years and jur journalism leaves that 10 years out every time, you know, so they say it's going to cost X and, and that makes people think it's going to cost X this year. No, it's over 10 years, but it's even worse in this case, because this, this was over 33 years. Yes. Now, why? 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 The time window? <laughs> why? 
but I read a bunch of stories after it, even in, no. you know, even in the top, you know, newspapers uh, in our country. And they just use the 400 billion number without saying 33 years. Well, and by the uh, way, we usually only talk about it in 10 and really it's only yeah. about $20 billion a year, which is like less than 1% of what the top 1% earn every year. Yeah. So, you know, like uh, meantime, we're spending $1.2 trillion a year on stock buybacks just to put yeah. that 20 billion a year in perspective. So yeah. it's just unbelievable how stupid that is and how irresponsible it is. I just cannot understand it. Also, let's be honest. It's not, there is no cost. <laughs> I mean, it's, right. it's not It's not real money. The money has already been spent. This is money yeah. owed to the federal government, most of which was never going to be repaid. Yeah. This, is a, right. this is stuff that would have been written off eventually anyway after creating decades of misery on the borrowers. And bankruptcies, right. Uh, yeah. Right, but it was- it wasn't going to be repaid, and therefore that money was never going to come in. Uh, it's not new money being spent into the economy, so there's there's no pressure. It's not inflationary in any way, and it wasn't going to create bigger deficits. It's not real money. It's just saying, oh, we were owed this money, and now we're not owed this money. Yeah. So journalism is, is bad in these ways, but I will say this in journalism's semi-defense most reporters, they're not opinion writers like me. They they have to report what people say. That's their job. So somebody has to say that, you know, <laughs> somebody has to say that. Democrats need to say at Capitol Hill gaggles, Goldie, what you just said, that it's not even real money and, and you know, and, and the rest of it. And they have to point out 33 years, 33 years, 33 years. You know, maybe they do. You know, I don't spend my days on Capitol Hill. And, and maybe they say these things and they just get left on the cutting room floor, but I kind of don't think so. Uh, Democrats need to reframe, you know, they need to just give a lot of thought to reframing the way political journalists uh, get this economic information. Just the way they let the, they allowed the, the Build Back Better to be described the way it was described, you mm -hmm. know, and just the simple right. use of the word spending instead of investment, you know? Right. Absolutely. Right. So, Michael, one of the questions that we get a lot from our uh, listeners is, OK, what can I do? Like, what should I do? Like, and we're with you. <laughs> yeah. But what what should we what should folks do? It's a tough question. It's easy for us because we're in the business of doing these yeah. things. Right. But yeah. Well, you know, how much power does an individual have in, in this massive country? You know, I could see people thinking, oh, what I do doesn't make a difference. But, you know, first of all, vote, because, you know, if 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 people don't vote, then there's just no there's no excuse for not voting in this day and age. Yeah. You know, there might have been 30 years ago, but there sure isn't an excuse for it now. Get involved locally in some, you know, minimum wage campaign or or something like that. You know, just do do something to support uh, any effort you see locally, because it's not all about Washington. It's not all about Congress. You know, minimum wages have been increased in many, many states and cities and right wing places. You know, my home state of West Virginia uh, and, and many other states uh, uh, have done this because the federal government isn't acting. So, you know, find a local living wage campaign or, or, or something like that. Any, any effort that is trying to 
take money away from rich people and give it back to middle class and working class people. Get involved. You know, even at a small scale, it makes a difference. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, dinner table conversations make a difference. Yeah. That every citizen can have an effect on the collective common sense that we hold about economic cause and effect. And when someone says to you, yeah, if they raise the minimum wage, it'll kill jobs, having both the courage and ability to push back on that and say, look, that's just that's just a thing rich people say to poor people to keep profits high and wages low. You know, that's a that intervention is is super important and needs to happen a million times a day in this country uh, over the next 10 or 20 years as we push back on you know all these terrible economic ideas and it, you're right it is a 10 or 20 year project i, I yeah. if we can if we can preserve democracy though i do think that we can win this economic fight yeah i agree i agree and uh, you know the uh, the shame of it of course and we didn't we don't we're not going to have time to go into this deeply is that the reason we're in a democracy fight is because of the economics yes of course because you know we you know both democrats and republicans governed in such a way that for the bottom 90 percent of americans things got worse and shittier every year for 45 years and after that a length of time people can be forgiven for wanting to burn the whole thing down demagogues only arise where there is economic yeah. pain and frustration that's right absolutely and so hopefully we can begin to prove the economy in a way that will prove to people that democracy is worth saving fast yep. enough but we'll, we shall see. Well, we have one final question, Michael, which is why do you do this work? Well, I originally did it because it was kind of the only thing I was good at. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you, know, you, did, I, you just, that, that's journalism in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's about right. I mean, you know, so I, uh, I grew up in a very political household. My parents were both, you know, pretty stout liberals. My dad was a lawyer and my mom was a school teacher. Uh, and um, in West Virginia, back when everybody wasn't necessarily liberal, but everybody was mostly Democrat. That's that's not the case now. But so, you know, I, I was taught to pay a lot of attention to politics and from the time I was a boy. And then as I grew, it turned out that I had a little bit of a flair for writing. So I just decided to combine the two. But so that's why I started. Uh, and, you know, uh, when I was young, covering politics was a lot of fun. You know, I went out on the campaign trail and we didn't have a bunch of fascists, you know, threatening to destroy the country. You know, Republicans were still conservative and they weren't my cup of tea, but they weren't nuts. So, you know, journalism it, through much of my career was very fun. But now it's not fun. It's it's serious work at a serious, serious moment in our history. So my mission now is a little bit more focused or whatever. Anybody with, I mean, I feel old, but anybody with children, we need to take this seriously if we love our children. Yeah. Because yeah. because that that caveat, that depressing caveat you gave us a few minutes ago, if you know we manage to preserve democracy, that that there should even be an if is just, ah, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, we all have kids under twenty, I think, or around that, and you yeah. know, I think about my daughter's future uh, a lot. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for writing the book and uh, playing such a central role in driving this narrative. And 
more yeah. to come, right? Well, absolutely. And I could, of course, say all of those things to you. And I'm grateful to you both uh, for having me on this show. I appreciate it. So it was great talking with Michael, and uh, I uh, highly recommend his book. A lot of stuff in there. Uh, one of the things that we didn't talk in depth about, though, Nick, was the economics, the actual right. um, economic theory behind Middle Out. And to be clear, you know, that is the biggest difference from the time I started working with you in 2014, where you already had Middle Out. And I know you had a good idea that it was true. It wasn't just propaganda. Uh, yeah, you believed that, that there was economics behind it. There was a lot of economic data already that was correct. supporting the general ideas behind middle out. But a lot has changed over the past, oh my God, seven, eight years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is that that the economic theory has really come together in a very uh, clear and compelling way. Yeah, I mean, the big difference, of course, is that over over these last eight years, A, there's been an avalanche of empirical evidence showing that none really of the claims that the neoliberals and trickle-downers were making about economic cause and effect or the benefits that their policies would bring are, is true, right? Never, never happens. The only thing that happens is the rich get richer. And the other thing that's come together, of course, is a much tighter and more compelling way of understanding economic cause and effect using the new science and assumptions that the last 40 years of research make obviously true, right? That, you know, the economy isn't this Pareto optimal equilibrium. Markets don't work because they're efficient allocators ex existing resources. They work by evolving new solutions to human problems. Prosperity isn't GDP. It's really the accumulation of solutions to human problems all of that stuff that we've talked about on the pod before comes together in a way that allows you to understand economic cause and effect in a much more precise way and make i think much better decisions about what kind of policies are going to work and what kind of policies aren't going to work and so the economics behind all of this is made huge strides which gives frankly, political leaders and policymakers much more confidence in doing the kinds of things that the Biden administration has just gotten done. I mean, there's a, you just have to remember that the Obama administration could have done everything the Biden administration just did. They actually had more political power, right? They had right. bigger majorities, but they chose not to, not because they couldn't, but because they didn't believe that these things were good. Right. I mean, you know, it's just it's really quite astonishing when you think about two successive Democratic administrations, one that was completely paralyzed around economic policy and this one uh, aggressively pursuing transformational policies that are going to make a big difference in people's lives. And to be clear, a lot of the science uh, that underlies middle out, that underlies the economic theory behind middle out, uh, that has been uh, emerging for decades right. uh, in uh, social sciences, uh, uh, psychology, sociology, anthropology, physics, game theory, information theory. And what middle out does, and I think this is what's really important, is we're kind of synthesizing it and putting a name on it. And you shouldn't 
underestimate the power of naming something. I think you yeah. said that in our in the interview. Naming yeah. something is really important because now we've got a place to put it and it gives it a power because it now exists on its own instead of this, you know, sense that, oh man, things don't really seem to be like we're taught they're supposed to be. Now we know what they are. Yeah, and that's and right. the truth is the economy grows from the middle out. The more people you include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows because the main economic resource is the knowledge and know-how of the people in the economy. That is where solutions come from. And that is how we make our world and our lives better. That's right. And it's pretty simple to say, and it's pretty easy to understand. And, you know, and we're very fortunate to have an administration that fundamentally agrees with that proposition and is governing um, and leading in that way. So, and we're lucky to have our friend, Michael Tomaski write books about it. Too. To chronicle it for us. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So everybody buy, buy Michael's book. Uh, yeah. Link will be in the show notes. Link in the show notes, the middle out, the rise of progressive economics and a return to shared prosperity. Well, in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk about middle out and the midterms. Uh, we're going to be discussing middle out policies that will be on the ballot in the upcoming midterm elections with some super smart political folks from the Winning Jobs Initiative, Bobby Clark and Melissa Morales. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.